Philippians chapter three. I wonder if you have ever just felt stuck in life. Maybe you've been stuck in some destructive habit, or maybe you've just been stuck in a lifeless, joyless Christian walk. Maybe you've been stuck in guilt or, or, or just stuck in sin in general. Have you ever just felt stuck in your Christian life? You know, I think a lot of people have, and I think a lot of people do. Now, the normal Christian life is that we would mature, that we would progress, and that we would have a growing measure of strength and joy that constantly we would be growing and experiencing more and more of what Christ has for us. That's the normal Christian life, but it's not necessarily the common Christian life. Do you know what I mean? It's normal in that that's what we ought to experience, but it's not necessarily common because many people never really experience that growing, growing relationship uh, with Jesus Christ. And so does the Bible offer some hope for us? Does the Bible offer hope for, for being stuck? Well, I believe it does, and it's found in Philippians chapter three. Now we've been studying the book of Philippians for a number of weeks now. We said the book of Philippians is a book about how to have joy in difficult times. And we saw in Philippians chapter one that we can have joy because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We saw in Philippians chapter two that we can have joy when we have the attitude of Christ. And we're learning in Philippians chapter three that we can have joy if we are growing in our relationship with Christ. And so Philippians chapter three, tells us how to grow, but it gives us two pieces to the formula. There are two essential pieces that are necessary if you're going to grow in your faith. If you're going to experience growing strength and growing joy, both of these are essential. We looked at the first one two weeks ago. We said, number one, you've got to know the starting place. And then number two, we said, and this is what we'll talk about today, you've got to know the path that you need to go on. Just as if you were trying to chart... Um, your journey to uh, some vacation destination, if you were going to go to Bar Harbor, Maine, that's a long ways from here, right? And so you were to pull out a map and you're going to chart your journey, you've got to know two things. You first of all have got to know where you're going to start and then you've got to know the path that you're going to take. And so we talked two weeks ago about the starting place. Now, I, I want to move on with the message today, but, but I, I must tell you this. You can't benefit from this. You can't benefit from the path if you don't know the starting place. In fact, we said a couple of weeks ago that many people get the whole Christian life wrong and the whole thing is a frustration to them and that's why they walk away from the faith. That's why they walk away from the church because they don't get the starting place right. And so let me just take a moment and talk to you again about the starting place. If you don't get the starting place right, by the way, all the stuff we're going to talk about, about the path, the last half of Philippians 3, not only will it not help you, I think it'll hurt you. I think the second half of Philippians 3 can be very valuable, but can also be very dangerous. If you do what he says to do in the second half of Philippians 3, but you don't know the starting place to this journey, it's not going to bring you closer to God. It's going to drive you further from God. So we've got to know the starting place. What is the starting place? Well, last week we read, or a couple of weeks ago, we read a lot of verses, but the focus was verse 9. So I want to show that to you on the screen, and I want to just review it for a moment. 
before we get to the path. Verse 9, Paul says, I am found in him. Uh, we said those are some of the most important words in the Bible. I am found in him, in Jesus. Not close to Jesus, not connected to Jesus, not, not sort of around Jesus, but I am found in Jesus, in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, which means my right standing with God is not because of what I've done in keeping the law, keeping the rules, but one that is through faith in Christ. We, we learn, first of all, that per our performance does not determine our position with God. That, that if you're a child of God, the things that you do, the way that you live, does not determine whether or not you have God's favor. Your performance does not determine your position with God. In fact, we learn to pray this prayer. Lord, remind me every day that there's nothing I can do to make you love me more. And there's nothing I have done or can do that would make you love me less. My position in you is firm because my position is not determined by my performance. But we also learned that our acceptance is based on the life and death of Christ. The reason I have a right relationship with God, if I'm a child of God, is not because of because of some exemplary life that I have led, but it's because of the exemplary life that Jesus has led, and I am in Christ. I am in Christ. He, when he lived that life, I lived that life. You know, do any of us deserve to have the favor of God? Do any of us deserve to have the favor of God? Well, yes and no. No in the sense that none of us have lived so righteously that God is impressed with us. Our sin separates us from God. But yes, in this sense, I am in Christ. Did you know that I fasted for 40 days without anything to eat and without anything to drink? I stared down the devil and took his fiercest attacks and, was, and never sinned. Did you know that I walked on water, that I fed 5,000 people with a loaf of bread, that I, I healed a blind man, that, that I allowed my body to be beaten and I didn't strike back? I did those things in Christ because when Christ did them, I'm in him. That's why I have a right relationship with God. So we got to know the starting place. I start as a child of God. If I am a child of God, I start perfectly accepted by the Father with the full measure of God's favor. Not because of my life, but because I'm in Christ and because of Christ's life. That's the starting place. Now, what's the path? Well, let's look at a few verses in Philippians 3. I want to begin reading in verse 12. After Paul establishes his starting place... He says, not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Now there he describes in four pieces uh, the path of Christian growth. How to have greater strength, greater joy, how to be closer to the Lord, Christian growth. So let me point out the four pieces. Number one, we must concede our weakness. 
We must concede our weakness. If you notice right at the beginning of verse 12, and then he repeats it again in verse 13, he says, I have not already reached the goal. Paul says, I'm not perfect. Now that's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's important for a theological reason. Some people will preach or some people will believe that we can reach this level of perfection in this life, that through a second work of grace, that, that God might bestow upon us just this absolute moral perfection. Uh, but I want you to know that that's just not the testimony of Scripture. In fact, the Apostle Paul and every other church leader in the Bible admits that he is not perfect. And nobody has been perfect. Perfection is, is, is a goal, not an achievement in this life. We are always to be striving to be more Christ-like. We, 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 we will never be perfect this side of eternity, but as Christians, we should be striving to be Christ-like. Now, his, his admitting that he's not perfect is important for a practical reason as well. You see, you can't grow in your spiritual life until you recognize how far short you are today. You can't you can't mature until you recognize your immaturity. You can't progress until you recognize how far it is that you have to go. And the Apostle Paul said, I'm not yet perfect. I've not reached the goal. And that is the beginning of growth. See, sometimes people will say to me, Pastor, my life is messed up. I'm, I'm in such a mess. I'm filled with such shame and guilt. You, you don't know the things that I've done. You don't know the, the poor choices that I've made. You don't know the scars that are in my life because of the sin that has been in my life. I could never be close to the Lord. And you know what my response is? You know what the biblical response is? You are in the perfect place to grow and mature in the Lord. Because it's only the person who recognizes his shortcomings who is eligible for God to grow him, for God to mature her. See, see, the apostle Paul said, I've fallen short. If you feel like you are so short of where you ought to be, good. You're supposed to feel that way. In fact, if you felt the other way, you would be disqualified from spiritual growth. It starts by conceding your weakness. Number two. You must maximize your effort. And so we see, let's look back at verse 12. Not that I've already reached the goal or made perfect, but the second half of the verse says this, but I make every effort to take hold of it. He says, I make every effort. Uh, now there's a word there, just one Greek word uh, that's uh, translated by in, in my translation, three English words, make every effort. Uh, it, it, was a, it was an athletic word. It referred to sprinting. You know what it means to sprint? It means to run as fast as you possibly can. What he says is, I am sprinting for the goal. The goal is to be Christ-like. He says, I am, I am giving it my all. I'm expending all of my energy to be as Christ-like as I possibly can be. And then if you look down to verse 14, he says the same thing. I pursue as my goal, 
the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Now the word pursue here in the original language is the same, uh, the very same word, dioko, it's it's, it's that same sprinter word. He says, I am sprinting in order to be as Christ-like as I possibly can. Notice that Paul has not, he's not casual about his Christian growth. He's not well, you know, I'm going to go to church and I'm as good as a lot of people. And, you know, I just enjoy a little fellowship and I like the music and, and, you know, I'm just casual about it. Paul did not have that attitude. He didn't have this let go, let God attitude. Paul was pushing. He was stretching and straining and running to see how Christ-like he could, he could possibly be. You know, I don't know much about sprinting might surprise you, but I don't do a lot of sprinting. Um, uh, but I did study it this week. I, I read a little bit about sprinting, and I want to give you a little primer on the, on the sport. Uh, in the last hundred plus years, the world's record men's 100 meter sprint, the world record has only improved by one second in over a hundred years. And people have been trying to go faster and faster for over a hundred years. They've improved one second in 100 years. In 1912, Donald uh, Lippincott of the United States uh, ran 100 meters in 10.6 seconds. A hundred years later, in 2009, Usain Bolt of Jamaica ran it in 9.6 seconds, one second faster. For the last eight years, nobody has been able to beat that record no matter how hard they try. And so all the sprinting world is focused on Usain Bolt and his 9.6 record, uh, trying to beat it by even one one hundredth of a second. I mean, it would make somebody world famous if they could run one one hundredth of a second faster than, uh, than Bolt. And so what have people been doing these nine years to beat his record Uh, It's only 41 steps, by the way. Doesn't seem very hard, right? They only take 41 steps in this race to go 100 meters. So I read this week, Justin Gatlin, a former Olympian and a trainer of sprinters, said the typical sprinter trains five to six hours a day, seven days a week for years, just in an attempt to beat Bolt's time by one one one-hundredth of a second. I read about some of their training. They measure everything to get it exact. They measure the the angle of the arm at the elbow. And I don't even know what that has to do with running, but they they hold their arms at 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 an exact angle. They they measure the angle of the runner as he comes off the block. They they count how many times the the runner breathes during the 10 seconds. They, They measure the distance between the chin and the chest so that it's not so low as to restrict breathing, but it's not so high as to mess up with the aerodynamics of the head going through the, through the air. They measure the initial stride length versus the mid-stride length. All of these things just in an attempt to go one one-hundredth of a second faster than Bolt. And in these 10 seconds, they absolutely exhaust uh, their bodies. And so I have... Uh, a, a chemical slash medical description of what happens in those 10 seconds. And I, I want you to listen to this. 
In the first two seconds of the sprint, the body completely depletes all available phosphocreatine as it is converted to adenosine triphosphate, uh, which is the uh, sort of the mechanism for energy in the cell. And so that energy source is completely depleted in two seconds. At that point, uh, anaerobic glycolysis provides most of the adenosine triphosphate uh, for the last eight seconds of the run, but it peaks at five seconds and rapidly fades. Uh, they say at the intensity that these runners run for 10 seconds, if they had to run 12 seconds, they couldn't do it. Uh, due to extreme and rapid oxygen depletion, the body is unable to use energy stored in carbohydrates, lipids, and proteins. That's how the rest of us get our energy. That's that system is not even available to a sprinter in those 10 seconds. Hydrogen production exceeds oxidation. Pyruvate, and I'm probably mispronouncing that, uh, binds to create lactate. Lactate decreases the pH of the tissues, which impairs muscle contraction by disrupting calcium release and inhibits adenosine triphosphate resynthesis, uh, which um, is why you just run out of that second energy uh, source beginning at the five second mark. And so all of that to say, if you run a hundred meters in 10 seconds, you will have pushed your body to its chemical limit. Chemically, you couldn't run any faster than that. Now, that's what Paul's talking about when he says, I make every effort to live a Christ-like life. We need to follow the example of Paul. We need to know that our position in Christ is secure, of course. That's the starting place. But we, like Paul, need to make every effort to be Christ-like. Have you ever been to a, to a marathon? If you go to a marathon, you know, that's the long race, 26.2 miles. Uh, they'll have people there that they call pacers. And they usually are carrying a sign or wearing a funny hat or something so you can identify them. But they're experienced runners that plan to run the race at a certain pace. Maybe they're going to run 10-minute miles or 11-minute miles or 9-minute miles. And so if you want to make sure you finish the race at a certain time, you know, you don't want to go too fast and tire out, but you don't want to go too slow and miss your target time, you can just run with a pacer. You can just look at that guy with the funny hat or with the sign. And if you run the same speed he runs, then, you know, you're guaranteed to get there at a certain time. Well, here's the problem. For most of us, the pacers that we look to when we're living the Christian life are just the people around us. And you know, they're casual about sin. They're casual about growing and maturing in Christ. They, they, don't, they don't really care about how Christ-like they are. And so, we don't care how Christ-like we are. We let those people set the pace. And what the Apostle Paul is trying to teach us when he says, I am sprinting, I am using all of my energy to be Christ-like. He is saying, I want to be your pacer. Don't just look to the people around you. Don't just look to the world, but look to me. Look, to, look at the effort that I'm giving and, and let me set the example for how you should strive to be to be Christ-like. This isn't just about, hey, you ought to try harder. It's that you ought to change your standard from looking at the people around you and saying, you know, I'm doing okay in my Christian life, to looking at the apostle Paul and saying, 
there's a new standard. In fact, if you look back at Philippians 3, we didn't read this verse, but it's an important verse to know. Verse 17, he says, join in imitating me. That means I want to be your pacer. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example that you have in us. You know, in Hebrews 12, he says something very similar. He says, uh, let us, he's talking about running again. He says, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that's marked out for us. You, you know, when you see somebody running a sprint, uh, they don't have on a fanny pack, right? They're not carrying water bottles. They, they don't wear blue jeans. They, they don't even have headphones on, right? Because they have laid aside everything that might slow them down. And the Apostle Paul says we need to be so serious about being Christ-like that we would lay everything aside and focus on, on following the example, the pace of Paul, and strive to be more and more like Christ. What's one thing you need that I need to lay aside in order to be more like Christ? Now, I want to show you a third thing. Uh, that we must do if we're going to grow, the third part of the path, we need to narrow our pursuit. Narrow our pursuit. If you look back at verse 13, the last part of that, the whole verse, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. Paul said, there's value in having just one purpose in life. And for Paul, his greatest purpose was to be Christ-like. That's the prize that he's talking about here. I thought about um, doing a little object lesson this morning. I was going to bring a quarter and a, uh, and a dart, you know, a dart board dart. And I was going to start by just flipping the quarter out to you. And if it would have come to you, what would you have done? You'd have caught it, stuck in your pocket. You'd have had a quarter, right? And then I was going to take the dart and whoever caught the quarter, I was going to throw the dart at them. Okay, now, you're going to catch the dart? No, you're going to duck. Now, why would you catch the quarter and duck on the dart? They're, they both are made out of metal and about the same amount of metal. I would, I'm guessing a quarter and a dart have about the same amount of metal. So why, why, why do you duck when the dart comes? Well, because the metal in the dart has been honed to a fine point. So it is more potent, it's more, it's more lethal, it's dangerous. And, and the Apostle Paul said, I'm not trying to do 45 things, but that would be the quarter. I have, I have honed my life to do one thing. I want to be more Christ-like. We need to have a single-minded focus. Now let me tell you how to do that. Because I want to be practical this morning. How can we hone our lives so that we have a single-minded focus well, first of all, we need to elevate our spiritual journey far above every other pursuit. Jesus said it this way, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. Now, I think we misunderstand this and this will bother some people, but that's okay. We think about putting Jesus first, putting being Christ-like first as, as meaning that here's, here's our priority to Christ-likeness. And then the next most important thing in our life, we're going to put right here. And then we got something else right here and something else right here. And what we, what we think it means to put Christ first is that Christ just sort of edges out the number two. 
But that's not what, that's not what that means. And, and Paul makes that clear when he says, I have one thing. Jesus says it this way, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. One thing. And so what does it mean to have one thing? Well, what if I told you that in my wallet, and I don't have my wallet up here, but in my wallet I have a picture of my wife. She is the love of my life. She is my bride. I love my wife. She is the number one lady in my life. But what if I turned that picture over and I showed you that there's a second picture? And I said, that, now here's another lady that I really like this lady too. She's, you know, she's pretty. I like spending time with her. She's like my number two lady. Now Donna's number one, but you know, here's number two. I mean, I'm really fond of this one. And, and then I turn over, here's, here's my number three girl. And here's my number four girl. Now, how do you think Donna would feel about that? I mean, she wouldn't like that at all. See, when I married her, I didn't say, Donna, I'm going to move you to the top of the stack. No, when I married Donna, I said, you are the stack. I mean, you're, you're the only one. It's not that you're like, you know, uh, you, just, you just edged out somebody else. No, no, it's, I, I'm single-mindedly married to Donna. And, and, and what Paul is saying is, is we need to move our our striving to be Christ-like, not as just barely above something else, but we need to make it all the stack. Now, how does that work out practically in life? Well, I hear people say things like this, and I'm new here, so I can say this because I just heard this at the last place. I hadn't been here long enough to hear it here, okay? But I hear people say, well, you know, Pastor, we're, gonna, we're not going to be at church for the next eight weeks because my kid's playing travel ball this year. Oh, really? Oh, really? See, that's, uh, you know, that, that's somebody saying, well, you know, Jesus is here, but travel ball is, I mean, it's below Jesus, but I mean, just barely below Jesus. Pastor, you know, I don't really come to church in the summer because in the summer we go out to the lake every weekend. All right, so Jesus is here and going to the lake is just, just right there. You know, I want to be faithful to give, but, you know, right now my kids are in college. Right, right now we're going through something at work. So Jesus is here and it's, it's you got something else right there. If we're going to be Christ-like, if we're going to have this honed in focus on being Christ-like, he's got to be clearly number one in our, in our lives. The second part of that is we have to remove distractions. And I don't have time to go through all of this, but you look back at that scripture verse. It says, uh, forgetting what is behind. We need to forget our past. We need to forget the bad stuff. Some of you think you can't go forward because you had a kid out of, let, out, out of wedlock. Some of you think you can't go forward because you've been divorced. Some of you think you can't go forward because of whatever. No, no. Listen, look at who's writing this. The apostle Paul is the one that said this. He's having to forget a lot more junk than you're having to forget or that I'm having to forget. The apostle Paul was a horrible person, a, a, a hypocrite, a, a violent man, a, a persecutor of Christians. But Paul said, I have to put all of that junk behind me. And you do, you do too. I do too. And so forgetting what is behind he, he not only, by the way, had to put the bad stuff behind him, he had to put the good stuff behind him. I, I think there are a lot of people, we, they, they've done enough good stuff. You know, they've read the Bible four times. They've been on six mission trips. They've given a whole bunch of money and they've been to church every Sunday for, you know, 30 years. And they think, you know, I'm fine. You know, I've done so much. I've sort of earned my, no, Paul says, no, you put all of that forgetting what is behind. There's not a person here that shouldn't be sprinting to be more like Jesus. But very quickly, number four, we need to embrace the urgency 
Um, I saved this verse to read at the end because I, it's one of those verses, it's easy just to skip over, but I, I think it's a critical verse. Verse 15, he says, therefore, therefore means because I've said all this stuff about striving to be more Christ-like. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. See, the apostle Paul knew that there would be people who would not have a sprinter-like commitment to being more Christ-like. I mean, he, he knew his audience. And you know, I know my audience a little bit too. I mean, there, there's some of you who will take this pretty seriously, but, but there's some of you just, you know, you shrug it off. You won't even remember it as of tomorrow. You, you don't have that, that desire to sprint to be more Christ-like. No. And so what do I do? How, how do I have I me? Mean, knowing that so many people just are going to shrug their shoulders, what do I do? Well, that's the dilemma that the apostle Paul was in. And, and, and what he says is, is nothing I can do. I can just tell you, you need to do this, which he did. And he says, if you don't do it, then I'm just going to have to let God show you. Now, uh, there's an easy way and a hard way to learn everything, right? And what Paul is saying is, you can learn from my words, from his word. He's saying this about his words. You can learn this from his words to be laser focused on being more Christ-like. Or if you don't, that's fine. God will show you himself. And so I'm telling you the same thing. You could be mature and just learn from the words of scripture and from the message that we've preached. Or you can wait and let God show you the importance of this. Uh, but God won't show you in near as easy of a lesson as what's been presented to you through the Apostle Paul today. Does that make sense? I mean, I don't want to, if I get more specific, I'll, I'll go outside of scripture and I, it'll just be threats and, and, and I can't do that. But I, what, what I'm saying is you can listen to, to the words of Paul or, or you can listen to the circumstances that God will bring into your life. But, but he says a Christian will be laser focused on being more Christ-like. You can be convinced how you want to be convinced. Now, let me wrap up with this. What should we do? Well, number one, you need to confirm your starting place. If you don't know Christ as your savior, that's not an unimportant thing. You have to start there. Jesus has died for your sins. You can trust him and make them the Lord and master of your life. Be adopted into the family of God. You can be saved today. We'll sing in a moment. And I'll be standing down here in the front. If you would like to know Christ as your savior, I would ask you to step out and let me talk to you. Let me match you up with a, with a man or woman up here who can help you know how to become a child of God. But if you are a child of God, you need to recognize that we're not sprinting from a place of fear. It's not like God's going to cut you off or you're going to lose his favor because that never depended on you to start with. We are sprinting from a place of victory. We need to change our standard. We need to quit being satisfied because we're as good as the person next to us. And we need to let the sprinting life of Paul be our example. And we need to make being Christ-like our one thing. And today, because I, I don't want this just to be a message. I want you to choose one change that you need to make for you. You don't have to share it with anybody. I'm not asking you to send me an email. You don't have to tell your husband or your wife. But would you choose one thing? 
Allow the Holy Spirit to highlight in your life one thing. Let, where is it going to start if you're going to strive to be more Christ-like? Choose one thing. And as we stand and pray and sing, you say, Holy Spirit, help me. Strengthen me to do this one thing for, your, for the glory and honor of the Lord. With your head bowed and eyes closed, Father, thank you. Thank you that my position does not determine my, my performance, that I am a child of God, and that's nailed down. But now help me as your child to strive for Christ-likeness. Teach me how to do that. And let it start with something that I commit to you today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Amen.